1: plushcare.com slash weight loss
0: listeners should refer to the disclaimer in the episode notes and at the end of this podcast.
1: What you tend to find is that where really, really poor outcomes happen they typically involve SMSFs and they frequently involve property as well. Now, a really common query is I want property in my super and for that reason, I want it self-managed super funded. My opinion on the matter is, and you know, my background's always been in equity markets and listed investments and, and, and managed funds, but property and superannuation do not mix well. It's it's like oil and water. The two do not make happy bedfellows. They're, they're not assets that are well-designed for one another. G'day and welcome back
0: to Equity ASA, brought to you by- by the Australian Shareholders Association. I'm Phil Muscatello, and today I'm pleased to welcome Andy Derrick to the microphone. G'day, Andy. G'day, Phil. How are you going? Andy Derrick is the principal of Advise Me Today, an independent financial advice firm. He comes from a stockbroking background and has worked for Wilson's Advisory and Macquarie Bank. So just give us a bit more insight into your background and working for these organisations.
1: Well, Phil, um, like most people, I kind of fell into financial planning and and wealth management. So I did accounting at uni. My brother did accounting. My dad did accounting. It sounded like a logical idea to a 17-year-old to do accounting. And then briefly spent some time working in kind of management accounting and business analyst roles. Wasn't very enthused in it. A friend of mine at uni always said that he saw himself ending up in financial advice. And I thought, well, you know, he's a pretty smart guy. Maybe that's a good idea. And I fell into just working for a boutique financial planning firm in Brisbane. From there, I, I kind of again fell into a, a role at a stockbroking firm with, with Wilson HTM, as it was then known, which um, in retrospect, I was incredibly fortunate to get into because it really opened me up to a lot of things about, you know, share trading capital raisings you know how how equity markets work um particularly exposure to you know some some pretty high octane sophisticated investment strategists and people and analysts and things like that i then went and worked for macquarie equities or macquarie private bank and was there for a number of years and again same thing i was was really fortunate to get exposure to you know there's not many investment banks in australia and i was really lucky to work within one of those because the resources and you know the 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 minds and research and and processes and things you're exposed to really, really are important, I think. Um, I I love everything about equity markets and economics. I just think it's the most fascinating thing on the planet.
0: So how did you pivot into financial advice and founding Advise Me Today?
1: I, I genuinely believe that advice can be a lot less conflicted. And I think that whilst I worked in some really top tier investment houses and and saw some really first class investment solutions, it was never lost on me how often the benefit didn't actually make it to the client mm. um how often you know that, that it was kind of eroded by fees or perhaps com- conflicts of interest or, or a number of different things but um, just a genuine belief that that there is a better way to do advice with much less conflicts by virtue of that i was quite fortunate if you're setting up a business from the get-go um, it was quite easy for me to establish myself as an independent mm. financial advisor which is quite important to me in first july 2021 I set up advise me today and yeah been been practicing that business yeah for over 12 months now so what is independent advice so independent advice an independent financial advisor is it's it's not particularly well understood and because um, a lot of
0: people market themselves as being Independent advisors, don't they?
1: Correct. And and what you tend to find is that a, a terrifyingly few amount of the advisors in Australia actually meet the definition of being independent. So there's a section of the Corps Act which dictates who and what is an independent financial advisor. And, you know, whether that number's one percent or half a percent, it it is terrifyingly few. And in essence what it basically means is that firstly To be independent, you can't receive any kind of commissions, primarily from insurance products. Second to that as well, you've got to have an open APL, and what that means in plain English is that you know you don't work for a company that's affiliated to a bank, and you've got a select menu of things to prescribe. And Um, that's an approved product product list, list, correct? So you've got free reign to recommend any product available. Which again, it's important because you don't want to be working for a company that limits you to you know products that they've got an ownership stake in. So again, it's a bit of a no-brainer in my opinion.
0: A lot of that's left over from the way the industry used to work, you know. Correct. But they've come from the, the banks and then they've been sold off, but then the products are still all seem to be all tied up via the approved product list.
1: That's exactly right. And it is kind of troubling how few people are actually independent and and just how important it is. And equally, I'm a part of an organization that goes a step further as well. So what one can call themselves independent and still charge a percentage based fee. And that means, you know, Phil, you and I sit down and I say, we'll manage your money for 1% of the balance. But because I'm a member of PIFA or the profession of independent financial advisors, we don't charge any percentage-based fees. So it's strictly fee-for-service and strictly dollar-based fees. And the analogy that I like to use is that medical analogies are fantastic because everyone knows and understands, you know, has seen a doctor in their time. If you went and saw a doctor, for instance, how would it make you feel if they were getting a commission-based payment depended on the kind of drugs they recommend so for instance if you went and saw a doctor and they had two medicines they could prescribe and one of those medicines paid a 20 percent commission to the doctor and one of them didn't well what do you think that doctor might be incentivized to do and you know perhaps we're talking about home brand Panadol versus Panadol and the differences in material but equally maybe we're not talking about that maybe we're talking about pretty serious differences and equally I'm sure a huge number of people wouldn't be conflicted and wouldn't find their activity you know dictated by those kinds of incentives but I just think it's it's just a, a real conflict of interest that, you know, really has shown time and time again that, um, you know, advice can be woefully conflicted.
0: When people are approaching a financial advisor or a planner for the first time, they don't even know where to start. They're, they're putting a lot of trust in someone that might be, have just been a recommendation from a friend or family or whatever. What are the kind of questions that uh, people should think about asking someone who might be looking after their financial affairs?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's all the standard ones such as, you know, what are your qualifications? How long have you been doing this? Tell me about your experience, etc., which is very important. And to be frank, I'm probably not the best person to ask because I describe myself as a bit of a self-hating financial advisor. Um, And a highly opinionated one as well.
0: (laughs) You're like the young gun who's walked into town looking for the old
1: gun slingers. (laughs) Yeah. Precisely. But in all seriousness, I, I really do think the industry is not very good at what they set out to do. But there's two that I would emphasize quite heavily personally. And, and one is naturally, are you independent? And again, there, there are very few that are, but I'd, I just, if I was given the opportunity between independence and not, I just can't understand why you wouldn't opt for it. And I think one that's not typically articulated to prospective clients is asking their advisor, well, what's your typical fee structure? and tell me about what kind of fees you're going to charge and again that's that's a pretty broad discussion and i'm sure you get a few garbled answers and and mysterious you know evasions but i think if your advisor can't tell you very clearly this is what it's going to cost you and by the way these are going to be the costs post you getting the advice i would just think that perhaps you know that's that's not a great indication of of you know whether they should be giving you advice or most importantly whether they've got your best interests at heart which again it's not hard to do that and so yeah i think that's a really important question
0: it's and it, there's usually three levels three tiers of, of fees isn't there like you know you've got the advisor fee you've got the platform fee and then the mer's or it's, I, icr i think Correct. is the other term that you'll you'll hear in this
1: case yeah and the two are interchangeable but typically the icr is is more indicative of the actual cost of the product. So the, the MER and the ICR are typically interchangeable, but we tend to prefer the ICR. And it is a, a real Pandora's box, the fee discussion, because there is admin fees, as investment fees, and there's advisor fees. But then you open up advisor fees, and it is a serious can of worms in a lot of instances. So you might have a fee for the statement of advice, which is the first process and the first part of giving advice. And then some people might charge an implementation fee. And then there might be brokerage or transaction costs, and then furthermore there might be an ongoing advisor fee as well. So it's honestly, you, you look at some of the numbers that that come out, and it's it's truly staggering, and it's it's truly eye watering the difference that you get sometimes between two advisors, which may look and feel the same, and the difference in the costs that they will levy on what is ostensibly the same client can be staggering.
0: So we're going into a situation now where the whole landscape of financial advice is in a state of flux, and you know we're also speaking before the results of the Levy Inquiry, which will be coming out later this year. And I think what we're seeing, and again, you know, using the young gunslinger analogy, is that a lot of the older advisors are moving quickly out of the industry, and we're getting to a stage now where there's only going to be 15,000 advisors in the whole of Australia, which seems like an extraordinarily low number. How is you as a newcomer into the industry, not so, sorry, I'm not saying, I don't want to say you're too young, but um, how are you seeing the industry changing and the future of it?
1: Yeah, and and in that vein as well. I'm in my 30s. I've I've been doing this for close to a decade. It's it's been the majority of my career. The average age of financial advisors is higher and it's it's always stuck in my craw when you hear people, you know, talk about, you know, I was there in the GFC, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and you think, well, okay, is that a positive or a negative because there was a lot of despicable behavior, there was atrocious outcomes for clients. So, I'm not entirely sure that that's a badge of honor in the advice industry, especially probably a different discussion with regards to the investment management industry but by and large in my opinion the financial advisor landscape and wealth management industry as a whole is it's kind of on the precipice of a wave of change in my opinion and and you know we could talk for two hours on that alone but fundamentally in my opinion just the industry at large is just hopelessly conflicted a a favorite line of mine which is from Charlie Munger you know show me the incentive and I'll show you the behavior and again, I, I just think the whole advice industry has kind of been designed around this incredibly lucrative fee structure um, whereby many people I don't believe are getting good value for money. And through changes in regulation, through very, very superior products coming to market, which don't necessitate or require advisors to be involved, I, I think you're starting to see a lot of growing awareness and pushback against you know people understanding that they probably might not being a product that is actually better for them but rather better for someone else and and subsequently also that they might be paying quite an extortionate amount of money in fees that they're not necessarily getting good value for or were even aware of such arrangements so I think just by and large over the next you know two four six eight years we're going to see a lot of change and part of that's driven by regulation part of that's driven by, technology. As you mentioned, the average age of financial advisors is quite high. A lot of them have existed in very cushy environments where it wasn't terribly difficult to make quite large sums of money and they're, they're finding it more and more difficult to, to work under the current regulatory regime. But fundamentally, I think the biggest change that we're going to see is just a, a growing awareness of, well, if you want just a high performing state of the art investment solution, maybe you don't have to pay someone an arm and a leg. Maybe you don't have to go into complex products. Maybe there are simple, easy solutions and, you know, the mediums of getting that information out to um, consumers is just is just radically expanding. And this is the perfect example, right? We were chatting off air just about, you know, Facebook groups, websites, newsletters, and, and especially things like podcasts and, and by extension, um, YouTube. There, there's an amazingly broad array of getting information out to people. And something I like to say is that there's, there's never been so much rubbish information and so much brilliant information out there at the same time as there is now. But um, there really is a lot of good information from reputable sources that are just making consumers more and more aware. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
0: That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites.
1: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: And we were speaking off-air about fee structure and how... You find the, the the problematic that there'll be ongoing fees when often it's a matter of setting and forgetting a an investment portfolio and leaving it so and you don't have to be there dealing with them once a year.
1: Yeah, and um, I always love that program, Mad as Hell, on on the ABC, and I just found it entertaining. They they've got you know a character that's a financial advisor, but there was one there the other day, and they said you know just stay invested, stay invested, and then. Um, they said, well, that's all you guys ever say. Why do we pay you? Which is very true. But I, I just think by and large the the incentive structure and the kind of the rent seeking behavior of the industry, in my opinion, has kind of built this distorted model, which is slowly, slowly finding itself just being outpaced by better ways of doing things. And naturally, there's a lot of vested interests that are resisting it and being dragged kicking and screaming but nonetheless you know you can't fight progress and my analogy is i think you should pay for advice in the same way that you pay a dentist or a plumber or a lawyer or a doctor you should pay them when you see them um so you know if they're giving you x amount of hours of their time they're gonna have to charge you for that etc but Equally, if you're not seeing that person, I mean, you know, do you, do you pay your the person you bought your car off a retainer every year? You know, do you pay your plumber a retainer every year, whether they come and fix your pipes or not? You're paying your estate planning lawyer a retainer ongoing, even though they've already sorted out your estate plan. So, again, I I, I just think that um it's just such an incredibly lucrative, um industry and 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 you know fee design that it's kind of built this distorted. Um, environment but nonetheless you know it is moving slowly but surely people consumers are becoming more and more aware and you also look at
0: uh, clients super accounts what do you look for in a super account
1: yeah so fundamentally superannuation is uh, again medical analogies are great because they're just so transferable but think of a financial advisor like your gp right so you go see them and they're they're good at diagnosing things and seconding you off to a specialist if required so for example you might need specialist accounting advice you know financing arrangements or but superannuation and investments are definitely in the forte of financial advisors and again all of these all of these terminologies that are thrown around wealth manager Private banker, stockbroker, financial advisor, investment advisor, financial planner—the list goes on and on. It's nauseating. Uh, in essence, really, the same thing. And it's someone that you know gives you financial advice. And the reason that super is just so front of mind and and so fundamental is that it's it's got to be one of the greatest wealth creating tools in history so i'm not aware of anywhere else on the planet that you know there's a product like superannuation that exists and i've heard the line thrown around that superannuation as a whole is the fourth biggest single pot of money on the globe i'm not sure what the first three are but it is a truly monolithic amount of money and again because we can't access it until we're approaching or in retirement, again, it's very out of sight, out of mind for a lot of people. And there is a lot of vested interests that are built around capitalizing their revenue off the really big behemoth that is superannuation. But the thing that I always like to say is that anyone that sits in front of you and tells you that their one portfolio or there is one perfect fund is absolutely full of garbage. There is no one perfect fund. And, you know, no advisor has the secret source to a special portfolio that's better than everyone else's. It's like anything in life, there's multiple ways to approach the issue of managing money and different approaches have different merits. And again, it's like anything in life, what you tend to find is that a mix of all approaches is the best, but in the same vein that there is no one perfect fund and there is no one single element that, you know, or one single fund that someone can say, this is the best. There's a raft of considerations that go into well is it a good fund because you can very easily narrow and sort funds into poor funds average funds good funds and great funds Um, it's quite easy to do that and there's a raft of considerations that you might you might apply for that and so some things that i talk to people about and ask them is how old you are actually makes quite a difference to what fund might be better for you something that's very common now and and in my opinion is going to get more and more front of mind is what we term sri or esg Requirements, which are you know, in large ethical things. So SRI, meaning socially responsible investing, and ESG, meaning environmental, social, and governance. And you know, if so, what are those? Are they environmental? Are they religious or faith based? Um, is gender equality a high thing of of high importance to someone? Do they have an aversion to a particular industry? So, for example, weapons manufacturing, uh, tobacco, gambling, alcohol, etc. Does that person need insurance? It's quite a big dictator of what's a good or great fund based on the cost and, you know, decency of the policy furthermore do they already have insurance um and do we want to keep that insurance that's often a consideration Yeah, because
0: insurance in a super account is opt uh, out isn't it not opt in so you you get it whether you want it or not
1: by and large it is yeah and and equally someone might have a good policy that um they want to retain and and that might rule out you know a fund that i think is a really brilliant fund fund a but then fund b allows you to port you know or transplant your existing insurance policy again which is a problem Solved, does that person have a specific investment preference so for example passive investing or index investing is that a real front of mind do they work in a specific industry you know there's there's funds that are aligned with and you know um, support the construction industry for example what's your past experience been like you know do you have an aversion to something that i would consider is a really good fund because they or a family member or someone had a really poor experience in days gone by. If so, that's fine. Let's, you know, find something that's really similar, but you don't have that poor experience with, for example. And then something else that isn't, I don't think, as well communicated as it could be is how financially literate is the person. So, you know, listeners to this podcast, I think, are, are quite likely more financially engaged and financially literate. But for someone who doesn't have any financial literacy well there's still a raft of really really top tier funds that will give you a first class solution and don't necessitate your involvement or um practising in it and then equally often incidentally, the exact same funds. If someone does have a real prerogative to be really engaged in their superannuation and engaged in their retirement structure, well, you know, there's a really broad array of ways that you can do that. So for example, you know, does someone want to trade shares Is is for, with a component or portion of their super? Do they enjoy it? You know, it's one of the things they love about their retirement is waking up and, you know, reading through the paper. And if so, how would you feel about having access to investment bank research and two or three different independent research sources that can help you make decisions about you know, what you might like to be buying or selling. And again, a lot of these are the same funds. It's just outlining to the person, well, this is the most appropriate course for you based on these factors. And again, that's where it comes back to there is no one perfect fund, but you can pretty easily narrow it down to a select few. And of those select few, it's pretty easy to find what aligns to that person based on those factors.
0: And so you obviously would come uh, into contact with clients who want to set up an SMSF. What are the traps that they've got to watch out for with that?
1: It's really poorly understood what they actually are and what they actually constitute. So, you know, I've I've spent a lot of my career dealing with SMSFs. Typically, if you work in a stockbroking house, you deal with a lot of SMSFs, not least because you're dealing with a large balance of client. But it's a it, previously it was a really efficient way to trade shares. And my opinion on self-managed super funds is that overwhelmingly, if you've got someone who's stridently um, recommending that you set one up it's almost always going to be far more in their interests than your interests to do so. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that, but self-managed super funds, by and large, the rationale behind it is I want more control over my super. And that's a, you know, completely reasonable request for people. um, And transparency is something they should and can readily find within their superannuation. But if your aim is to get more control over your superannuation, an SMSF often isn't going to be the best way to go about that. And if your aim is to get more control, transparency, and, and just understanding around your super, um, there's been a lot of developments in products over the last five or 10 years that allow you to do that without setting up an SMSF. And by the way, there's also been advancements in SMSFs, which make it, um, in often many cases, lower cost ongoing, but, what you tend to find is that where really really poor outcomes happen, they typically involve SMSFs, um, and they frequently involve property as well. Now, naturally, you know we're speaking to the audience of the Australian Shareholders Association, but a really common query is, you know, I want property in my super, and for that reason, I want a self-managed super fund. And look. My opinion on the matter is, and you know, my background's always been in equity markets and listed investments and, and managed funds, but property and superannuation do not mix well. It's it's like oil and water. The two do not make happy bedfellows. They're, they're not assets that are well designed for one another. And then further to that as well, whilst SMSFs, Do bring some advantages. For a lot of people, those advantages are completely meaningless and they also bring risks. So they're costly to set up, they're costly to wind up. You might not be doing anything incorrect, but the ATO, if you go outside the remit of the law with your self-managed super fund, which you might not do for skullduggerous or, you know, underhanded reasons, it might just be a poor understanding of the the regulation, etc. You might find yourself in, in hot water in your super fund, you know, be subject to pretty um substantial penalties, which again, isn't overly likely, but again, it's a risk. And the reason that I always hear people seeking out a self-managed super fund is for the purposes that... I want more control over my super, I want more transparency over my super. And I think they are brilliant suggestions. And my personal advice would be that you don't have to go down the path of an SMSF to do that. But all the same, I mean, it's it's important that people have the right super fun for them. So where it's appropriate, sure. But I would say that overwhelmingly, the majority of self-managed super funds around today could be more cost-effectively replicated in another super fund at lower cost, better performance, less stress- And something that's not overly well discussed is one situation where SMSFs can prove especially troublesome is with estate planning. So whilst they can be very, very customizable in that regard, when you look through a lot of cautionary tales about estate planning gone wrong with respect to superannuation, a real common theme with them is self-managed super funds. The thing that I just always reiterate to people is that my opinion is that most of the time, and overwhelmingly proportion of the time. If someone's telling you to set up an SMSF, it's in their interests a lot more than it is in the interests of the person setting up the SMSF.
0: Okay, so um, we can listeners find out more about you and get some more medical analogies.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, um, that's all the medical analogies I've got, un- unfortunately. But um,
0: oh, I'm sure you can come up with some more. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Um, my business name is Advise Me Today. Our website is au based in Sydney you know we service clients Australia wide I'd, I'd encourage people to give some insight and a cursory Google search to independent financial advice cuz there's a couple of organizations that represent independent financial advisors and I think do a really good job of it and again they both do it with consumers in mind. And aside from that, I uh, I think there's like we were alluding to earlier, podcasts like this, there's there's never been so many phenomenal um, sources of information. And often that that's just as simply your super fund. Or again, I'm a huge believer in alignment of interest. So, you know, the, the ASA, for instance, is is an association. So it's it's not a for-profit enterprise. And I think it's a great place to get information just like ASIC's Money Smart Source or um, Industry You know, there's all these brilliant industry organisations and particularly ASIC MoneySmart that don't have a vested interest in giving you simple, transparent, easy to understand overview of the situation. And naturally, there's there's no better source than that That than advisemetoday.com.au.
0: Fantastic, Andy. Thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Thanks, Phil. Pleasure. The
0: company and or guest has contributed to the cost of production associated with this episode of Equity ASA. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice as we don't know your personal financial situation. So you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation.
1: Hold up.